Our Old Testament reading is from Genesis chapter 2. I'll read uh, verses 18 through 23. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Our New Testament reading is from Luke. This is uh, from uh, the Magnificat. So a little, little out of season, but I'm going to make it work. Uh, Luke chapter 1, 46 uh, through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arms. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And our sermon text today is uh, back in Exodus. Exodus 1, I'll start with chapter or verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, When you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it along among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go, 
So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Okay. So we are continuing our series in Exodus, and you will notice uh, from our reading today that we've actually made it past chapter 1. I'm not sure that we're quite done with chapter 1 quite yet, but at least we're making progress. Um, Now just to give a recap, if you'll remember last week, we were asking the question, you know, why does Pharaoh fear the Israelites so much? And why does he persist in his attempts to enslave and kill the Israelites? And uh, because we have learned the importance of uh, reading Exodus uh, with the book of Genesis in mind, we look back at the the whole story going back to the Tower of Babel. And we saw the role that fear and anxiety had played in Pharaoh's actions. And what we saw is that throughout Genesis, that this belief that there is not enough and God's uh, abundance is not sufficient leads to the abuse of power. And that's what we see in Pharaoh. Now this week, we're going to turn a little bit. Uh, What I want to do, even though we're covering a lot of the same material we looked at this week, this time I want to switch from Pharaoh to looking at the Israelites. Uh, And particularly the ways in which Pharaoh's plans to destroy the Israelites are thwarted. So if we look at our passage today, our text introduces Pharaoh's next plan to solve the Israelites' problem. So the first plan was he was going to enslave the uh, Israelites. That didn't work. Uh, So he decided he was going to work them really hard. That didn't work. And so this is uh, plan C. Pharaoh calls the midwives and he orders them to kill all the male babies that are born. And the text gives us the name of the midwives, Shifra and Puah. And this is really pretty significant because we aren't actually given Pharaoh's name here. We get the names of the midwives, but we don't get the Pharaoh's name. And so uh, that's, a, that's a really interesting point here. Um, I think, uh, I, I think uh, as we'll see the story develop, you'll kind of see why. Uh, but just some background here. The name Shifra means uh, beautiful. Okay, It's actually uh, the root of our word sapphire. So when we talk about sapphire, this is actually where that word comes from. Uh, Pua is a pretty rare name, but it means something like little girl. And it's likely here that Shifra and Pua were probably not the only midwives in, uh, the, uh, for the Israelites in Egypt. More than likely, they were probably the head of a guild of midwives. So these are people in charge. These are leaders. Now, as midwives, they would have dedicated themselves uh, to guiding mothers and children successfully through the birth process. So, you know, it's no surprise here that when Pharaoh asks them to kill a child, they uh, do not follow that command. Uh, The answer uh, to Pharaoh's uh, command is uh, they can't. They they, they simply ignore his orders. So Exodus tells us that the midwives do this because they fear God. And, you know, if we think back to kind of the trends we've been talking about uh, as we've looked in Genesis, uh, what the midwives are doing here in their fear of God is they're seeing the birth of the children as a work of God. You remember, that's the whole point of, of God in creation is to be fruitful and multiply, to increase. That's exactly what the Israelites are doing that Pharaoh fears so much. And so the birth of these children is uh, another example of this. So, so uh, what's happening here with these midwives is they see God at work 
work, uh, and they uh, recognize the hand of God in abundance and fertility and life, all the things that we've been talking about the last two weeks. And so in this way, uh, we have the midwives acting as a contrast to Pharaoh. A Pharaoh sees the Israelites as a threat. They're not a blessing. Uh, the midwives, though, on the other hand, uh, see the hand of God in abundance and fertility and growth. And so the midwives are wise, whereas Pharaoh is foolish. Now, once Pharaoh realizes uh, that another one of his clever plans is failing to achieve the desired results, he interrogates the wives. And the, what midwives, in response, develop a very clever story about why the Hebrew, and, and they say, you know, you know when the Hebrew wives, uh, women give birth, the baby just kind of plops out too fast. You know, you don't even need midwives or something like that. And it's actually quite an ingenious story. And, it, it's, um, and the reason why is because it actually, like, plays into, like, this Egyptian racism, right? So it begins with this idea that, that the Egyptian women and Hebrew women are different. You know, that's a, otherness is all always like at the heart of racism, right? Um, and as opposed to, you know, the delicate, refined Egyptian, you know, we have these like, like brutish Hebrew women who just like, you know, push out their babies in no time. And it's almost like he, she's uh, like saying like they're animals. And, and in fact, um, the translation of our text, I think when I read this, uh, my text says the word vigorous. Uh, that's way too polite. Um, the Hebrew word is sheot. And it does, it means something like a wild animal. So, so brutish is probably the right idea here. But it's, so, it's such a clever story because it plays into Pharaoh's prejudice. The Pharaoh totally kind of accepts it. He's just like, well, you know, nothing else I can do. Um, and so again, what we have here is the midwives looking wise and Pharaoh looking foolish. He's totally been fooled by this. So not only does Pharaoh... Uh, not see God's blessings, whereas the midwives do, uh, Pharaoh falls for their plan, uh, which, which, like I said, is super clever. And the result is that God gives the midwives the blessings of creation. So again, the midwives are aiding here in thwarting uh, Pharaoh's schemes by being given families of their own. So, so not only is Pharaoh's latest scheme in Israelite population control ruined, but Pharaoh now has even more Israelites to fear as a result of God's blessing on the midwives. So, you know, totally like this whole, uh, you know, almost making fun of Pharaoh here. And, you know, it, we, we do this sometimes, you know, we want to take the Bible and we should take the Bible with like reverence and everything like that. But we also need to be aware of like what the story is trying to tell us. And it's almost, uh, it is mocking Pharaoh here. And we're supposed to read this and almost kind of think that this is like, like silly. Um, so Pharaoh develops a new scheme, and this plan is Pharaoh's most diabolic yet. This time, Pharaoh commands his people to throw the newborn males into the Nile River. And there's really an intentional irony in this plan. Uh, you remember we talked about last week, the Nile is the key to Egypt. It's the key to everything in Egypt. You know, I actually read this interesting stat even today. So, so 99% of the Egyptian population lives on the 3% of land that borders the Nile River, okay? Like, Egypt is like the Nile. 
and it's what made their empire great. It's the source of Pharaoh's power. It provided fertility throughout the Egyptian kingdom. Egypt would be nowhere without the Nile. In fact, the Nile was worshipped as a god in Egypt. The god's name was Hape. And if you look at a depiction, uh, it's, the, the god is pregnant, okay? And it's because it's supposed to symbolize life and fertility. There's a few more features, you know, we could go into. But uh, fertility is definitely a big one for Hapi. But here what we have is Pharaoh is perverting the Nile, which, is a, which should be like a symbol of life and fertility, you know? The good things that, that God has given to humanity. And instead, what is he doing? He's turning it into an instrument of death. Okay, so there's the irony there. Now, as Pharaoh implements his new policy, we begin chapter 2 by hearing about this couple from the tribe of Levi who have a son. Now, we know this son's going to be super important. We know the son ends up being Moses. But for right now, we're just told, you know, he has a son. These people are having a son. Now, here's what's really interesting here, okay? And if you're like a deep reader, that it's like you're a Bible nerd, you may have asked this question before, okay? So... Look at this. If we look at chapter 2 and verse 2, what do we do? We read, the mother saw that the baby was a fine child. She looks at her baby and says, what a fine child. Okay. And it says, so rather than letting the Egyptians, you know, throw him in the river and kill him, uh, they decide, well, we, we, we've got to save this child. And so she hides the baby, right? Now, does anybody have any, like, questions about this passage? I don't know. Does anything, any, anything kind of, like, weird you out about that? Like, uh, well, like, she sees he's a fine child. Like, like, what if the baby was ugly? I don't know. Or, like, can the mom think any child's, like, ugly? I mean, you know, like, there's, like, this weird thing. Like, why does it say this thing about the, like, oh, she saw her child was fine. Like, who, what mom doesn't do that, right? You know? So, like, it's kind of interesting there. And actually, I think that detail is, like, the detail is actually super significant here, okay? So, we, to understand the point that's being made here, if we look at the Hebrew here, it's actually quite interesting. Because, you know, Hebrew is always interesting. Um, first of all, the word child has been supplied here. So, the child is actually not in the text. It reads more like, she saw that he was fine. Now, here's the thing you need to know, though. The word for fine here is tov, tov, okay? So, so does anybody, uh, Dale, tell us what the, what the word Hebrew, the Hebrew word tov is usually translated as? Good. Good, good. So it's more like she saw that he was good. Okay, now that's usually how, how the word's translated. So, so, so mazel tov, Dale, for knowing that. So, so the phrase mazel tov, there's tov, okay? Yep, you got it. So she saw that he was good. Now, now we know, because we've been in this, uh, you know, sermon series for a couple weeks now. What's the most important thing we need to do when we read the story of Genesis? Or, I mean, Exodus, right? I just gave it away. The most important thing we need to do, that was Freudian, I guess. The most important thing we need to do when we look at Exodus is read it in conjunction with Genesis, okay? They're so connected. And if we want to understand what Exodus is trying to tell us, we've got to understand Genesis. Now... I bet you all see where this is going. Because in Genesis 1, when God creates the universe, he creates it, and then what does he do? He looks at it, he evaluates it, and he says, it's good. Right? He pronounces it good. So, so every time God does a creation, it says, and then he saw you know, the, the sea or whatever and says, it's good. So 
it's the same word. It's this tov word. In other words, this detail is alerting us to the fact that the, what the mother is doing is recognizing in the child the work of God, the work of creation, because she's repeating God's actions. She saw the child and saw that he was good, just like God in creation. Okay, she is emulating God. In other words, uh, that's what we're supposed to see here. So, I mean, it's a weird detail, right? But like, it this is intentionally weird to kind of make us start thinking in these directions. So, just as with the case with the midwives, right? The mother is seeing the generative, life-giving blessings that God has for His people, and she refuses to participate in the the, the destruction. So what we have is a little bit, you know, you can see the stories are a little bit more connected here. Yeah, like the midwives, she acts creatively, right? She fashions a basket out of papyrus and bitumen and pitch. Interesting, the word basket is tiva, which is the same word we have for ark, like is in Noah's ark, okay? Um, Notice, too, that she uses the famous, uh, it's actually like, I think it's like my text says bulrushes, it's actually papyrus, you know, which is kind of like the thing you think about, like when you think about Egypt, it's like pyramids, crocodiles, papyrus, right? Like, so this is like an Egyptian symbol. Uh, she uses that to build the ark. And the word for bitumen here is uh, similar to the word for mortar, okay? So mortar being like, you know, the, the, the Hebrews were, were supposed to uh, build the store cities and they make bricks and they use mortar, okay? It's the same word here. Um, and so, you know, we have kind of all these uh, different ideas about Egypt being used creatively to subvert Pharaoh's plan, right? Uh, in fact, the word for river here is not the normal word for river. It specifically refers to the Nile. So we have this kind of ironic reversal going on here. Like I said, you're supposed to see this as kind of, I wouldn't say quite humorous, but this is, this is like uh, mocking uh, the Pharaoh, uh, where all these symbols of Egypt and oppression are being used not for death, but for salvation and life. So she's building you know, Noah's Ark out of Egyptian symbols, okay? Uh, and so by doing so, we see that the power of Egypt is being subverted here. Uh, you know, first it was subverted by the midwives uh, and now by this mother. Now, probably the greatest subversion happens is the next scene. Uh, as the baby sister watches, the basket is discovered not just by anyone, but by an Egyptian. And not by just any Egyptian, but Pharaoh's very own daughter. And unlike her, her father, Pharaoh's daughter sees the baby and has compassion. So she doesn't see this baby as a threat. So Pharaoh has only viewed the Israelites as a threat. Uh, but Pharaoh's daughter sees this baby and she has compassion. It tells us, you know, she took pity on him. Uh, so like the midwives and the baby's mother, Pharaoh's daughter recognizes the blessing and goodness of life. And she doesn't participate in discussion. So again... In contrast to the Pharaoh, she is shown to recognize the hand of God at work and, and uh, recognize that. And so in that way, she's wise, whereas Pharaoh is again seen to be foolish, not recognizing this. Pharaoh's daughter uses her power from her exalted position to bring life and nourishment to the baby. She saves the baby and decides, you know, comes up with a plan for the baby's health to grow and to prosper. And so in another ironic reversal, this is probably like the best of all, the baby's mother, who believed that the only way to save the baby was to send him away, becomes reunited with her child. 
the mother is even paid to take care of her own child. Wow, that's really cool. Um, so again, the power of Egypt is being subverted in another, you know, really creative and surprising way. So let's look at this. You're already starting to see patterns here, but let's kind of put all this together. I want to just tie all this together. So if we look at all these three stories together, what we have are three stories in which a child or children are saved from Pharaoh's death sentence. And each story is a bit different, but they share a series of common features that I've been trying to highlight here. And this is actually like a really common Hebrew technique, okay? So, so having these like repeated similar stories, what you're supposed to do when you read those is kind of find where the similarities are because that's where we learn the meaning, okay? So the repeated parts build on one another. They highlight the points the author wants to make. So by noticing these repeated features, we learn more about what Exodus is trying to tell us. So what do these three features have in common? Well... In each case, we have uh, Pharaoh's attempt to murder uh, uh, male children undermine, first by the midwife's deception, then by the mother's plan to send her child away, and finally by Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, in each case, the midwife, the mother, and Pharaoh's daughter act in active, creating in surprising ways, and directly contrasted with Pharaoh, okay? Each see God at work. Uh, and whereas Pharaoh, uh, you know, remember what Pharaoh's first words were in Exodus. You know, he's looking for wisdom. He's like, let us deal wisely with the Israelites. That's what he wants is wisdom. So um, where these three are shown to actually be wise and their plans result in blessing, whereas Pharaoh's plans are continually thwarted, revealing Pharaoh is foolish. So it's an amazingly subversive set of stories. Now, there's one more set of similarities that I haven't mentioned. You may have noticed. Anybody want to take a guess? Thousand resurrection points if you can figure out the, 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 another set of similarities here. They're all women, right? The hero here is all women. Now, uh, in fact, incredibly for ancient literature, all of these, story, these stories almost, they almost, not quite, but they almost passed the Bechdel test. Okay, anybody know what the Bechdel test is? If you don't, it's probably worth a Google. But anyway, you know what the Bechdel test is. I knew you would. I was counting on you. Um, but besides that, here's what I want you to notice, though. Okay, so if you read commentaries on it, so I'm not the first person to notice this, okay? So I'm not like some brilliant genius who's like, oh, look, they're all women, right? But here's what's interesting. When you read commentaries on the explanation of this, this is how it typically goes, Okay. Exodus highlights the women here because weak women undermining the powerful male pharaoh is not only subversive, but it's like super humiliating. That's usually the explanation you get from the commentaries. Now, I am not satisfied with that. I don't think that's right. Because, uh, because see, here's one thing. There's one thing these commentators haven't done. They've missed something. Because if we want to understand Exodus, what do we need to do? Understand Genesis, Caden, a thousand resurrection points. We need to go back to Genesis. So if we go back to the creation story, which happened to be our Old Testament reading today, okay, um, you know, we, 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 we have this, you know, God's creating the universe. He's, he's, he's uh, looking at it. He's pronouncing it good. And uh, we already, but, but we do have uh, one place where, where, the, where uh, God looks around and he sees that something's not good. What, what is that? 
It's not good for the, for the man to be alone, right? So that's one, the one place. And God comes up with a solution to that. He's going to build a helper fit for him. And we know the rest of the story according to Genesis. God puts the man to sleep. He takes out a rib, makes the woman. It's the problem solved. The man's no longer alone. And the man composes a poem. So what does that have to do with Exodus? We'll get to that. The problem is it's really hard to see this connection with Exodus because centuries of bad translation. Okay, and most of them are a result of, uh, no surprise here, misogyny. Okay, so we need to go back. I need to undo all these centuries of bad translation, and that means lots of word studies. Okay, so yes, yes, word studies. Yeah, ancient Near East agricultural practices, newsmatics, and word studies. All resurrection church. All right, so. What I want to do now is look at the story of this creation of woman that we read earlier today and see if we can do better. So first of all, we read that it is not good for the man to be alone. So notice the text doesn't, doesn't say Adam. It doesn't say a man, like in his name is Adam. It actually says the man. It's got like the definite article the. And um, it's an okay translation. But you could actually simply translate this as the human. Like, it's not good for the human to be alone. Because the word Adam, Adam, which is uh, translated man here, is actually derived from the Hebrew word for ground. Okay, so the Hebrew word for ground is Adama. So Adam is, is Adam because he's taken from the ground. Okay, so, um, and, and that means... For instance, uh, we, we may be jumping a little bit ahead by using the term man, okay? In fact, we could probably just use the term like groundling or earthling, okay? So taken from the earth, it's the same idea, you know, or human taken from the humus or I don't know, whatever. But, but the idea is like groundling or earthling is actually like uh, uh, an okay way to do this. And, and the point I'm making here is that it's not clear that this being, this Adam, the Adam, uh, is actually male until the creation of the woman. Uh, It's difficult to say for sure, because this is kind of like a weird case, but the translators may have jumped the gun here by saying man. Eh, It's a little speculative, but just follow with me there. You don't have to buy that necessarily. But second, the text tells us that God's solution to the problem of the man or the earthling being alone is for God to make him a helper as his partner. Now, this is where it gets really interesting, okay? So helper is an okay translation. It's not bad, but it really doesn't get across what's intended here. So the Hebrew word for helper here is azir, okay, azir. And when azir is used in the Old Testament, the most common subject for that verb is God, okay? So God is usually described, is almost overwhelmingly in the Old Testament described as an azir. Okay, so if we read Azir, it's probably talking about God. For example, in the psalm that we read today in our call to worship, it said, one of the lines says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. So when it says help there, it's Azir. He is our Azir. So when we see the word helper, there is no sense in which that is meant to be subordinate. Okay, in fact, the opposite is usually the case because it's usually God. Okay, so when we have helper, don't in any way think subordinate. Now, a better translation for Azir would be something like an ally. 
But even that's a little too weak. Often when we read Azir in the Old Testament, it's got this like military component to it. Uh, so like deliverer or rescuer, okay, could work. So delivering ally is probably a better way to think about the word. But in any of them, my point is that we need to think of Azir as a little bit different than just helper, okay? Because I don't think that really gets across to us the point. And so with the big point that Genesis is trying to make is that it is through the Azir, or delivering ally, that the earthling can fulfill his uh, God-ordained role to tend and guard the garden. The, 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 the human, the, the earthling, was placed in the garden to tend and guard it. It was alone. And so God creates an Azir to be uh, the delivering helper. Okay. So, that's what's been going on so far. Third, God makes the azer by taking a rib from the man or the human. So, rib is not an even close translation here at all. The Hebrew word zalah, which means side, like is in the side of a building, like a wall, okay? In fact, like if you, in Exodus, they talk about the Ark of the Covenant, and you put two poles alongside the, the zalah, or walls here. Uh, so, what's most likely being pictured here is God, God like taking a side out of the, the, the earthling or, or the human or the Adam or whatever. You know, it, it may be more akin to splitting in half, okay, than like taking out a little rib. Okay, now, after the side is made into a woman, we have the terms man and woman used for the first time. He's no longer alone. God solved the problem of the human's loneliness by making a mighty ally, a delivering ally to be his partner. And now the human, for the first time, can effectively tend and guard the garden alongside the woman. That's the picture that Genesis is trying to give us. Now, that's usually not the picture that we grew up being taught, but, hey, I got word studies on my side, so, you know, I'm going to defend most of this. Now, there's one more word we need to look at. So, word studies not done yet. Y'all are getting your money's worth of the Hebrew word studies today. In verse 22... It said that God takes the side from the human and makes the woman. Only interestingly, the text does not say the word make. The verb that's used here is actually bana, which means build. Like when you build a building, like you build a wall, you build something, you build like a structure, which is kind of bonkers because why does God build a woman? It seems a pretty poor choice of words. It's not used in any of the other creation acts. And the other creation acts, God like forms things. He like uh, he makes things, but but he doesn't use the word build. But I think it's the key to understanding everything that I'm gonna that, that I'm trying to get at here. Okay, so we got to think about build because let's think back to last week's sermon, right? So we looked at last week's sermon and we looked at the connection between Pharaoh. And Cain and the, the story in, in Babel, right? And so we looked at how Cain and Babel, the, the tower builders in Babel and Pharaoh, they all acted out of fear, right? They rejected God's provisions for them. They saw things as scarce and they persist in their rebellion against God. But notice too that in all three cases, okay, Cain, Babel, and Pharaoh, what did they do? Uh, when they realize, how does their fear manifest itself? What do they do to solve the problem of fear? They build, Bana, 
a city. That's what they do. And remember, the key to a city is it has a wall. So it's not just like a bunch of you know, houses or anything. It's got a wall. It's for protection. So Cain builds a city, and he names it after his son Enoch. The people of uh, Babel build a tower and a city to keep from being scattered. And Pharaoh enslaves the Israelites and has them build store cities because he's afraid. So notice the parallels here. See, notice what Exodus is trying to tell us as we read through Genesis. Cain, the people of Babel, and the Pharaoh encounter a problem. And to solve that problem, they build cities. Uh, They name their cities Enoch, Babel, and Python, and Pi-Ramses. By contrast, what happens? God determines that humanity has a problem. It's not good for humans to be alone. And so he builds a Azer, a delivering ally named woman. And in this weird kind of connection, I know this is like a little strange here, but bear with me. This connection is even stronger in Hebrew. The word for city is ear. The word for delivering ally or helper is azim. Okay, they're actually almost the same word. They're, in Hebrew, they're spelled almost exactly the same. The middle letter is a little bit different, okay? And that's no accident. So Hebrew literature does this all the time. It's called paranomasia, okay? So, so this is intentional, is what I'm saying. So let's follow this thread. Now that I've kind of laid the groundwork here, let's follow the thread. The point is that the Bible starts off with God solving a problem by building a woman to act as a delivering ally. And what follows is a series of humanity's cheap attempts to solve their own problem by building cities. Okay? Now, if we see this pattern in our text in Exodus, then this series of women under my Pharaoh is not just being used as a way for, you know, weak women to embarrass Pharaoh. Rather, we are seeing God's delivering allies, his azers at work. Uh, this is, this is uh, God has purposely built them, asserting their strength as they were designed to do to subvert and defeat Pharaoh's foolish schemes. And so the pattern that we find in Exodus is not an aberration designed to make Pharaoh look bad, but instead it's the way that God created and designed for the world to work. The garden is now being tended in garden with the help of the Azir that God had built. So, If that's the pattern and plan from the beginning, it should come as no surprise to us that the story of God's plan to restore fertility, life, and abundance to the world that that starts in Genesis and is being continued through Exodus gets repeated and magnified throughout the Bible until it reaches its apex of the story of Israel and the coming of Jesus. Jesus, of course, is the promised seed of the woman who is to defeat the seed of the serpent. Jesus is born of the woman Mary, the pregnant woman Mary, who upon meeting her pregnant cousin Elizabeth, burst into this incredible song from our Old Testament and New Testament reading. He has sown strength with his arms. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. It can almost be directed to Pharaoh, right? Like, this is like the same thing. And what crazy revolutionary words these are, coming from a poor, beleaguered peasant woman who herself is threatened, whose child is threatened by those in power, whose life is subjected to the whims of another tyrant, this time the ruler of the greatest empire in, in history, Caesar. And so Caesar 
in Luke's story is following this long line that has begun all the way back to Cain, goes through Pharaoh. And yet Mary sees in her baby the means and the answer to overcome those tyrants who operate their kingdoms based on fear and scarcity. It's the same story here, again, repeated. In the Azer and in Jesus, we see an alternative. And this is really what's really interesting to me because we've kind of been looking at Exodus and one of the themes that's emerged is this idea about power. How we exercise, how is power used in the world? How do we exercise power? How does God want power? How does God, how does God expect, God's put humans in charge. He's put them in the garden to tend and to guard it. But how do they do that? What is the power that they use to do that? That's kind of the theme we've been coming back to. And so we see in the Azer and in Jesus, we see an alternative to the exercise of power of Pharaoh. Okay? And the question is, how do humans rule? How do they tend to guard the garden? And the revolutionary answer that Jesus gives is not by violence, not by oppression, and not by walls that result from fear. We've seen how the Bible has been condemning that means of power. Instead, the Aziers of Exodus and Mary tell us that it's by bringing babies and life into the world. Okay? That's the way the world is saved, by a different use of power. And, and that power is symbolized by birth and life, but I don't mean it just like physically the act of having a child. It's bigger than that. It, it's bigger because it incorporates all the traits that we associate with, with birth and child, child raising and motherhood. You know, this would have been so much better if I had preached this last week on Mother's Day. But anyway, <laughs> um, but it was so effectively demonstrated by these women in the Exodus stories, the cleverness of the midwives to preserve life the self-sacrificing of the baby's mother to preserve her own child's life, and the use of power by Pharaoh's daughter to nourish and grow life. In each of these stories, the women are bold and courageous. They're filled with compassion, mercy, and justice. Not the traits that Pharaoh is uh, known for in the Exodus story here, right? It's the opposite of that. But that's the kind of power that God wants projected into the world. This is the way the kingdom comes, not by war cries, but by the cries of a baby. Jesus could have come into the world in any way, but strangely, he comes as a baby born of a woman. But then again, should we even really be surprised at that if we've been following along, right? I mean, if we've gotten the story, it almost makes perfect sense. And Jesus comes as a baby, a baby that rejects the ways of power that have been common to humanity from the beginning. But what he does do is he exemplifies the qualities of the women in Exodus who undermine and subvert the powers of the world, not with a sword, but by what Jesus does, by healing and feeding, who don't build walls. But instead, what does Jesus do? Breaks them down. Jesus, who declares himself a servant to all and ultimately gives his life for the world, the self-sacrifice. God has built an azer, and as a result, a new world has broken in that has rejected our typical ways of power. And instead, this new power, this new power is one of love, it's one of nurturing, service, sacrifice, that is amazingly demonstrated by the stories of these women in Exodus and perfectly embodied in the life of Christ. And so what is our, what do we do with this? I think it's simple. This is our charge. This is how we exercise power into the world. We look to the example of these women. We look to Jesus because by doing so, that is how we tend and guard the garden. That is how we fulfill our purpose. 
And that is how we practice resurrection.